And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. I'm going to start off by sharing with you the strangest and yet one of the most powerful rebukes I've ever gotten from somebody. In 2009, I lived in a three-bedroom apartment with nine other brothers, eight to nine, depending on the season. We had a quadruple bunk bed in my room, which I was part of. I was on the bottom part, and there was a California king laid on top of two twin, uh, a loft and a twin, uh, twin uh, bunk bed. If you can just visualize that, that architecture uh, mastery right there. And then the other one, we took a uh, twin bunk bed, and then we put cylinders under it, a uh, uh, cylinder box under it to make it higher, and then we just slid a mattress under there, and someone slept under there. That person had the most faith out of all of us, because I, I'm not sure if that was safe to this day. But you can imagine, um, so 10 years ago at this point, and we're in Bible college, all of us, and we're all very zealous, all very immature, and, uh, and so we clashed a lot. And that was a really stretching season. You get a bunch of sinners and put them in a house together. Um, half of us were probably more, if you use the sociological term of like an alpha male, half of us were alpha males. And so there's lots of clashing. And I remember there's one season, um, I, I, I moved from Cal, uh, Georgia to California and I had very little in the bank account. And there came to be one point where there was almost nothing in the bank account. I almost had zero, if any of you guys know what that feels like to see almost zero in a bank account. And um, I started to panic. I'm not sure what to do. And, and so what I did is I noticed that my Discover card had this cash advance uh, program, which had a great interest rate of like something like 20 something percent, you know, very, very generous of them. And I, I went for it. I, I borrowed like $500 or a thousand. I can't remember at that time to pay the essentials uh, for my credit card. And one day we're just talking as a house over a meal. And I share casually that I took a cash advance. And my friend Jason looks at me and he says, how dare you? How dare you? And I'm like, what? <laughs> That's kind of weird. No one says that. Why? What do, you, what do you mean? Why would you say, how dare you? Excuse me. Uh, he, he said this. He said, Sam, we're a family. We're a family. How dare you go and get a cash advance and not share with us your financial need? You robbed me. You robbed your brothers of financial, financially serving you. And I know if you're hearing that, you're probably like, some of you are like, dude, what, who's this guy? He needs to chill, chill, calm down. But let me tell you something about Jason. Jason believed every word of it. He meant every word. Of it. And he, he came off really hard. Me and him, believe it or not, clashed the most out of that group. But that really deeply impacted me that day. See, is it that Jason is so weird that he would rebuke me for going out and not sharing my need with my family uh, and, and, you know, going through the credit cards to do it? Or, or is it that I'm weird? Or is that we're weird? Uh, that we are so hyper-individualistic and we totally don't get that we're a family as a church, that we often live like individuals, isolated from one another, and we just meet each other on Sunday at a church service. See, what 
what Jason started to show me that God was already working in me is this understanding that church is a family. Church is a family. Church is not a building. You don't go to a church. You're part of a church. And I know that's something that we say a lot here, and we're going to keep saying it because it's so important. And maybe you can relate with you. Maybe there's a season in your life, or maybe you're in that season right now where you won't share with other people need because you're embarrassed. You, you, you won't share need because maybe you're proud or, or you don't want to bother people. But, but, but let me tell you this. If you are part of this church, you are robbing me from serving you and blessing you. If that's your situation. You are robbing greater blessing. You're robbing from letting me live out my God-given role as part of your family. And so that's where we're going today. We're starting this three-part series on identity. And if you notice, at the bottom of this this banner, it says a beloved family of missionary servants. And this is something we talk about um, kind of on the side, and every once in a while we, we emphasize it a little bit, but we're going to do, do a short three-part series on our identity, and then we're going to go into our series on the Gospel of Luke. So the first week, we're going to be talking about being a beloved family. Now, what, the reason why we're talking about identity is because identity is about the truest, most important thing about you. See, we make a big deal in the church about doing stuff, right? You need to obey, you need to, your faith needs to have action. Those things are absolutely true. But ultimately, what you believe about yourself is what you will ultimately do. Being precedes doing. And it would be a miss of me to say, we need to be more like a family. We need to start doing more family-like things. We need to hang out. We need to care for one another. We need to share resources. We need to do all these things like a family would when most of us or some of us don't really believe we're a family. No matter how much we try to dress you to act like a family, if you don't truly fundamentally believe a church is a family, you're not going to live that out. If you still, in your mind, you may say it with your mouth, believe that this is all about individuals coming to a service, then you're going to live like that, obviously. Now, let me give you an example to clarify how important understanding your identity is and how if you just function basically on the outward level of what you ought to do, you're going to totally miss it. Check this out. This is a really helpful um, quote uh, from, oh, man, I swear I separated it. Okay, um, Elise is going to fix it, fix my mistake. Um, so there's a book called Atomic Habits, and James clearly makes a really great um, example. Let me read it to you, and then hopefully you can uh, hear it, read it. <laughs> Imagine two people resisting a cigarette. One, when offered a smoke, the first person says, no thanks, I'm trying to quit. It sounds like a reasonable response, right? No thanks, I'm trying to quit. But this person still believes that they are a smoker who is trying to be something else. Did you catch that? They are hoping their behavior will change while carrying around the same beliefs. The second person declines by saying, no thanks, I'm not a smoker. It's a small difference, but this statement signals a shift in identity. Smoking was part of their former life, not their current one. They no longer identify as someone who smokes. Most people don't even consider identity change when they set out to improve. They just think, I want to be skinny, which is the outcome. And if I stick to this diet, then I'll be skinny, which is the process. They set goals and determine their actions they should take to achieve those goals without considering the beliefs that drive their actions. They never shift the way they look at themselves. They don't realize that their old identity can sabotage their new plans for change. 
Were you guys able to track with that? If that happened with these slides, then all the slides are going to look like that. I'm really sorry. I fixed it an hour ago, I promise. We have a widespread epidemic in identity confusion in churches and in, Mer in America in general. And if we are confused about our identity and who we are, we're ultimately going to be very confused and struggle with our outcomes that we want. And so no matter how much we say, let's be generous with one another, let's bear one another's burdens, if we don't get this identity thing set, we're going to miss it. And so just to be clear, when I say we are a family, I don't want to say we're like a family. The church is like it. No, the church is fundamentally a family. You are literally Jesus' blood-bought brother. God is literally our father. We're literally brothers and sisters of one another. We're literally beloved by him. We don't have missional community groups here because that's a good thing that anthropologists say that we all need community. You know, I see that sometimes in churches. They'll, they'll say, hey, everyone needs community. Join a small group. No, no, we do missional communities and DNA groups and things like that because we are fundamentally a community and therefore we're going to do that and plus we need community. Do you guys see the difference? One is, is operating the church kind of like this thing of, hey, what do you need? What are your felt needs? Oh, you're lonely? Okay, well, we got something for that. We got a, a men's group, a girl's group. Oh, you want a wife? We got a singles group. Now, fundamentally, the reason why we talk so much about community at APC is not because we have a loneliness epidemic, which we do, if you do the research. Uh, you, you, the UK is struggling with this so much, they e even hired a loneliness minister. Because loneliness levels are going up so high in the UK. But fundamentally, the reason why we do it is because that's what we are. We are a family. So without beating that dead horse anymore, let's get into the text. Now we're going to be primarily looking at Mark chapter 3, and then we're going to take a quick pit stop at a handful of other passages. What I'm going to do today is primarily focus on helping us grow in our identity and our understanding that this is true of who we are. And I'm going to spend very little time of what that would look like tangibly. I had a sermon for you that would be an hour and a half that had all of that. And then I realized that you wouldn't appreciate that. So I cut that and I put it in the mid midweek podcast. So we have a ton in the midweek podcast. It's its own sermon. So please check that out. Um, we're going to go in deeper detail. So back to the text, Mark chapter 3, verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came, this is Jesus, and standing outside, they sent him and called to him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. All right, now let's, let's try to get the scene. Jesus is teaching at a house, and it is so full that anyone on the outside can't get to him, okay? There's just people piling around, like standing and sitting on top of each other. It's insane. And Jesus is teaching for hours on end. And then his blood family comes from the outside, and they're like, hey, can you tell Jesus that we're here? We need to talk to him. So what, is, what do they do? They kind of play telephone. Hey, Jesus is here. Hey, uh, Jesus, your family's here. Jesus, your family here. It's, pass it on. Jesus, your family's here. And then eventually it gets into a crazy joke by the time it gets to Jesus. You know what I'm saying? Anyone? Anyone? Telephone? All right. But, but it gets to Jesus, and Jesus hears, okay, my family's outside. Okay. And what does he do? He uses this as a teaching opportunity to explain something fundamentally that's shifting. That it's going to totally blow their mind. So look at verse 34. He looked around at those who sat around him and he said, Here are my, brother, my mother and my brothers. Here are my mother and brothers. What? <laughs> Jesus, are you saying that your family that's outside, 
your blood family is actually not your family, that those around you right here is your family? Is that what Jesus is saying? Kinda. Now, for us in the West, when I say the West, I mean, you know, this hemisphere and, and, and more uh, my, uh, uh, our, our culture, uh, this is not that crazy to us. It is strange. Like, what, Jesus, why would you do that? But, but for those from that culture, from Jesus' time and from anyone from the East, um, would, would find this extremely offensive, confusing at minimum, downright disre disrespectful at the worst. What the heck is Jesus doing here? Well, we'll get more uh, into what it, what it takes for someone to be part of God's family, but, but let's understand the context. Let me help you kind of peel back the layers from our context and go into the context of that time of Jesus' time. So think about this. Jesus' culture was very much more like an Eastern culture, a majority culture, and, and some sociologists call this strong group culture. Okay, can you guys say strong group? Okay, strong group culture or strong group society. Let me share this quote with you from Bruce Molina. He's a professor at Creighton University, and he explains to you what a strong group is. Um, this sermon is going to have a oh, it's beautiful. It's spread out. This sermon is going to have a lot of like quotes out there, so it's going to be more of a teaching uh, by, the, by the nature of this topic today. Okay, in a strong group society, the person perceives himself or herself to be a member of a group and responsible to the group for his or her actions, destiny, career, development, and life in general. Correspondingly, he or she perceives other persons primarily in terms of the groups to which they belong. The individual person is embedded in the group and is free to do what he or she feels right and necessary, only if in accord with group norms, and only if the action is in the group's best interests. The group has priority over the individual member. Now, keep this quote in the back of your mind because we're going to return to it and we're going to switch it a little bit. In his helpful book, Dr. Joseph Hellerman, he wrote a book called When the Church Was a Family. He sums up three primary principles that culminated the culture regarding family in Jesus' time. Here's, here are the three principles. Principle number one, in the New Testament world, the group took priority over the individual. Okay, principle one. Principle two, in the New Testament world, a person's most important group was his blood family. And principle three, in the New Testament world, the closest family bond was not the bond of marriage. It was the bond between siblings. Now, I'm not going to go into all of that. There's a lot more there. His book is excellent and worth looking at. But, and this is not to say that this is always the case in every single situation. You can never say that about any group of people, right? There's always outliers. But in general, this was the reality. That in the New Testament time that Jesus was speaking to, the family was the primary reality that you would do everything through. Your job would be based off of it, who you marry, where you live, how you spend your time, your affections, your, your passions. Everything was based on the family. The family was everything. Now, compared to our culture, in our culture, what's the primary goal of parenting? To get your kids to do what? Get, go away. Get out of the house. Let me get you self-sufficient so you can move across the country. And I'll fly over there a couple times a year to see my grandkids. You know? Like, that, that's kind of our mindset. I know some of you guys laugh because, you know, that's, that's, that's common. Right? And in our culture, um, who dictates your job? Yourself. Your passions, yourself, who you marry, yourself, where you live, yourself. 
And so uh, fundamentally different from the culture of Jesus' time, our culture is all about the individual, and their culture is all about the group, all about the family. Now, something that we need to ask ourselves, is culture necessarily bad? Is because if it's in our culture, does that mean it's bad? No and yes. Yes and no. When you look at Jesus' ministry, he had no problem calling out the Pharisees and the different religious leaders and the culture of his day that was commonplace when they rejected orphans and widows and ostracized people. That was normal in their culture. So as much as they cared about family, they also didn't give a rip about the poor. And Jesus had no problem ripping them to shreds about how messed up that was. And at the same time, we have to look at every culture and, and, and put it through the lens of Scripture and say, okay, is this biblical? And wherever a culture lines up that's biblical, we want to celebrate it and highlight it. And whenever we see our culture doesn't line up with Scripture, we want to carefully reject it. You guys tracking with me? And that's, that's when I said the word carefully, we've got to be careful because it's tricky. Because sometimes our cultural lenses blind us when we read our scriptures. And so we've got to be very careful. We're doing our due diligence when we do this. So the reason why I share that is because just because this was Jesus' culture does not mean it's okay. So when I say, oh, in their culture, they made decisions based off their family. They got married based off of their family. That doesn't mean it's okay. But we have to understand what was going on and why Jesus, um, what Jesus was speaking to in this situation. I want to read this quote with you quickly. Hellerman shares this quote. Social scientists have a label for the persuasive cultural orientation of modern American society that makes it so difficult for us to stay connected and grow together in community with one another. They call it radical individualism. What this amounts to is simple enough. We in America have been socialized to believe that our own dreams, goals, and personal fulfillment ought to take precedence over the well-being of any group, our church or our family. For example, to which we belong. The immediate needs of the individual are more important than the long-term health of the group. So we leave and withdraw rather than stay and grow up when the going gets rough in the church or in the home. Let's get back to the text. Now that we understand that context of how offensive Jesus is speaking, how radical his statements are, what makes someone a mother or brother of Jesus? Look at verse 35, if you will. This is what makes someone a mother or brother of Jesus. For whoever does the will of God, he is my mother, brother and sister and mother. He or she. That would, the text would imply both male and female. So, the answer to this question, who, what makes someone part of Jesus' family? What does the text say? It's very clear. Those who do the will of God. Those who listen to Jesus. Those who are around Jesus' feet. Those who want him. And at this point, much of Jesus' blood family are not yet following him and listening to him. Later on, we'll see them change, many of them. But at this point, it's, it's, it's split, it seems. That his very blood family do not recognize him as the Messiah and the God, and the God that he is. And you are not following and listening to him. So let's take a, back, a step back and really understand what is Jesus saying here. Many of you guys are probably familiar with this text. What is going on here? Okay, Jesus is speaking to a very, very strong group society and literally telling them, listen, my new family takes precedent over every family, every blood family. It would feel like absolute betrayal. It would feel like absolute insult and a slap in the face 
He's literally telling everyone what makes someone to be part of this new family is not if you're related to him or if you grew up with him, but if you follow him. And that's really good news because that bus opened the door for every ethnicity. Because look at me, I'm not Jewish. <laughs> it's good news for me and it's good news for all of you here who are not ethnically Jewish. Because this bus opened the door because any of us can be part of God's family. So if you want to know who Jesus' family is, you have to ask yourself, who does the will of God? So let me ask you this real quick. Let me take a, 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 a pause in this message. If you want to know if you're part of God's family, here's a simple question. Do you do the will of God? Not do you go to church? Not do you pray prayers? Or you, you, do, you have verses up on your Facebook wall or anything like that? Do you do the will of God? He simplifies it. Now there's more in, in, the, in the Bible that talks about this. We're going to go there. But let's just simplify it real quick. Do you do the will of God? Let's look at another text now. John chapter 1, verse 12. But to all who did receive him, this is speaking about Jesus the Son, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Real quick, let's just be clear. Not everyone is a child of God. That is bad teaching when people say, we're all children of God. Well, some of us are. Who, what does this text say? Who are the children of God? Those who believed in his name, who received Jesus. Now, it's true that God is the creator of all people in the one sense that we're all God's children being under one creator. But, but, but fundamentally, when Scripture speaks about God's people being his children, that is set apart for those who are trusting in Christ. Verse 13, who were born, not of blood, which is everyone else, right? Everyone in the world has been born of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This born-again reality is for a select group of people who have put their hope and trust. And what does it mean to say that you've received Jesus? Is literally saying you're receiving him as your Lord, your Savior, and your treasure. Your Lord, your Savior, and your supreme treasure. Which necessarily implies that you have to reject yourself as your Lord, Savior, and treasure. Which means that everything else that replaces God, you have to reject if they are getting in the way of Jesus being your Lord, Savior, and your supreme treasure. And when you say you receive Jesus, you're receiving everything that he comes in. You, you don't just kind of salad bar Jesus. Oh, I like his justice teaching. Oh, I like his racial, but I don't like the judgment here. You know, like it's all of him. Just like when you get married to someone, you're not like, well, I will marry that, but I won't marry your baggage. <laughs> Right? That, that doesn't work well, right, in premarital counseling. Like, I like this stuff, Sam, but this, you know, it doesn't work, right? When you receive Jesus, you receive all of him, all his kingdom, and all of his ways, his desires. And so those who are part of this kingdom are those who do the will of God, part of this family, do those who do the will of God who have received Jesus and are born again. If you want to be part of this family, you're not sure you are. You're not sure you're born again. You're not sure you're his. Please come talk with us. We'd love to talk to you more about that. Do not leave tonight if you have insecurity, if you're part of God's family. Please do not. Now let's look at another text, Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1 verse 5 on the screen. He predestined us for adoption. This is God the Father predestining us, the church, for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Now, like all these texts, they're all worthy of a sermon. We did preach a sermon in this over, over a year again, a year ago. But let me highlight a few points here, okay? 
those who are Christians, according to this passage, are those who have been adopted as sons. Now, I didn't say sons or daughters, and the reason why I said that is because in the New Testament context, the son received everything, okay? It was, it, I, I think that's wrong um, from, from my vantage point, but in that context, only the son received inheritance, okay? And so that's important why we continue to translate it as sons. So, so, so girls, sisters, you receive the inheritance as if you were a male in that context. And not just any male, you receive the inheritance as if you are now a prince, part of God's kingdom. That you are receiving the same inheritance that you would as if you were a blood son. This is insane. So you get the benefits and status of being one of Jesus' blood brothers. And those who are now children have been also saved by God's grace. Nobody is part of this family because you are good enough or you're good looking enough or coming from the right stock. It's only those who have been washed, only those who have been saved by grace. The only way you can be here is by the blood, not the blood uh, 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 of, of your literal blood, but the blood of the Son. Only by the blood of the Son, Jesus, can you be a son. And that's beautiful. And finally, those who are part of the family, look at the ver verse 6. It says, the beloved are beloved. They're deeply loved. God wanted you. This text shows us that he predestined, he desired you, he chose you. Your family may have not planned you, but God did. Your family may have not chose you, and if they had it over again, they may not choose you, but God chose you. And God chose you before you could do anything, knowing full well what you would do. So, guys, this is, this is so basic, but so good to be reminded. It is one thing to choose someone and not know what will come of it. It's another thing to choose knowing full well what will come of it. And God chose you and me knowing full well every time we would backstab him. That's amazing, isn't it? It's so simple. So simple, but so good. And that is what makes the church a bunch of blood-bought sinners who don't have any business being part of the family, and yet they're sitting at the table because God made them. God brought them. God purchased them. God made the way. And so that kind of posture is what we have to have if we're going to be this beloved family. See, if our posture is one of exclusivism and elitism, that's, that's what happens to churches where we, legalism starts to get in and we start looking down on people who look different from us or who don't act the right way or, or don't use the right Christian lingo or, or they don't dress the way we sh they ought to dress, ought to dress in quotes. But if we, we start from this foundation that none of us deserves to eat, eat at this table, none of us deserves to be here, none of us have the right bloodline, none of us have the right pedigree or history, and it's all by grace, then what kind of hearts do we have towards one another? Just grace and love and patience and forgiveness. Let's look at Romans 12, 5. It's the last text we're going to look at, and then we're going to get into some, some other stuff. So in Christ, we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. There's a lot here in Romans 12. Oh my goodness, there's a lot here, but let's just make this one thing, hi highlight this one reality. Look at this line, belongs to all the others. Listen, if you are a Christian, you belong to each other. You belong to me. <laughs> Doesn't that sound so messed up? 
you belong to me, I belong to you. It goes both ways. And for pastors especially, we're the servants of all. That's what the Bible calls us to. So don't, don't think it's just like, oh, this is, now, now come wash my car, right? right? I belong to you. First Corinthians 12, Paul expands this, this picture about we're part of a body. So we're different members, part of the body. And so like we're literally connected to one another. So we need one another. Can't be like, oh, I don't like that part of the body. Yeah, I don't like my foot, you know. I'm just not really, I don't like the, the way it looks, right? Like, you need your foot, right? We need one another. And it's just this beautiful picture of belonging and needing one another that, that, that God shows us in, in the New Testament. There, there are a lot more passages here, but I, I want to move on because I, I want to talk about not how shall we now live, but how shall we now think? How shall we now think because a lot of us here, if I were to poll you, especially if you've been at APC, part of our community for long enough, I said at APC, come on. Um, if you've been part of this community long enough, you're like, oh, Sam, I know we're family. We talk about that all the time. But we all struggle. I all struggle living it. If it is true that Christians are those who have been adopted into God's beloved family, how should we now think? Before we get into all the living and doing and actions, how should we think about this? Okay, let's get into thinking. Okay. Another word for God's family is church. And what I want to do is I want to highlight how we can sometimes view the church differently. And, and in, in doing that, highlight the truth that scripture shows what the church is like. Okay, let me share with you a, a paragraph from the, the book um, Letters to the Church by Francis Chan. It, I find this one of the most helpful books, um, especially in this situation. So check it out on the screen. We live in a time when people go to a building on Sunday mornings, attend an hour-long service, and call themselves members of the church. Does that sound shocking to you? Of course not. This is perfectly normal. It's what we grew up with. We all know that good Christians go to church. But have you ever read the New Testament? I love how Francis just asked such a question. Like, do you, have you ever read the Bible? Do you, do you find anything in Scripture that is even remotely close to this pattern we have created? Do you find anyone who went to church? Try to imagine Paul and Peter speaking like we do today. Hey, Peter, where do you go to church now? Oh, I, I go to the river. They have great music, and I love the kids' program. Cool. Can I check out your church next Sunday? I'm not getting much out of mine. Totally. I'm not going to be there next Sunday because little Matthew has soccer, but how about next week? Well, sounds good. Hey, do they have a singles group? Now, I know that sounds humorous. Like, some of you are laughing. Some of you are just like... I don't know, maybe you're like, what's wrong with that, Sam? <laughs> but the reality for many Americans, church is very much like that. It's just something we add to our life. It's just another thing that we juggle. So first of all, we need to see the church not as a place or a time, but a family you are a part of. So not as a, not a, as a place or time, but a, a family you are a part of. So for many American Christians, we have a list like this. First, God then family, then church, then work and others. Right? That sounds reasonable, right? God's first. You guys have ever seen this list or made this list yourself? Now, the biblical model is a little bit more blended. Check out this next list. First is God's family, the church, and within that is love for God. And second is your biological family, and we're going to talk more about that in the midweek podcast. How do you juggle between 
allegiance to your biological family and allegiance to the church, and especially when it's tricky when your biological family are Christians also. We're going to talk about that in midweek. And third, others. Now, if that doesn't make things clear, maybe these graphics will. Check out these graphics. The first one, uh, these are from the book Total Church, one of the most helpful books. Can you see it from over there? So for many of us, the prevailing view of life today is that an individual is heroically standing on their own, juggling various responsibilities. You got family, friendship, career, leisure, chores, decisions, community involvement, and money. And from time to time, pressures can overwhelm us, and we start juggling and juggling and juggling, and eventually we drop one of the balls in our life. And often, many times, one of those balls is the church. You guys tracking with me? It's very normal. Or, oh, oh, hey, Sam, I can't make it Sundays anymore. I can't do this anymore. I, I just have too much on my plate. Uh, the, the boss is really riding me. We just had triplets, and, you know, no one ever says that. But, like, all right, I can't do that, right? So we, we throw it. But what, what I think is a more biblical model is this next graphic, is this. When life gets crazy in the second model, the church becomes even more prominent in someone's life. See, because what happens is the church is, 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 is the center. You are part of the, the body. You're a family. You don't do things alone. And so when you are juggling all the craziness of life, it's more like spokes on a wheel. It's in the center. And the church is right there for you to handle everything going on in your life. And so when things get crazy in one of the spokes, guess what? The church doesn't disappear. It actually increases. See, if all of a sudden you have triplets... It's not like, hey, see you later, Sam. I'll see you next year when we get our handle on life. Maybe then I'll see you. No, no, no. The church gets more and more involved. See, the total church has this great illustration about Bob and Mary. Bob and Mary are part of the church, and all of a sudden they have um, twins. And because they have twins, they're just totally just like, right? Have you guys ever seen someone with twins? It's not good. It's not pretty, right? And so they're like, hey, guys, pieces. We love your church, but we'll see you guys in like nine months or whatever it is. But rather, what if, if they, if they viewed church like most people do, they're in the middle juggling it as well as other things in their life, that's what would happen. But if they understood the church as fundamentally part of their family and fundamentally who they are, then the church becomes more involved than ever. And so perhaps some of you go to their house in the morning and watch the kids while the, the couple can have breakfast and talk together. And maybe someone else volunteers to drive them to work. And while Bob can pray in the car or take a nap. And how about somebody else brings them a meal at night and catches up on how they're doing? You see, see, if, if you have church as just one thing in your life, then it's obviously going to drop when life gets crazy. But if your church is integrated and part of your family, when life gets hard, they're just more involved. Isn't that beautiful? Is that nervous, nerve-wracking too? Or some of you are like, oh, oh, oh that's, that's too much. I wasn't signing up for that. See, this, this is the biblical understanding of church. And I know that's a very st strong statement. But church is your family. And so if you guys are struggling, then we need to be that much more in your life, not less. Now, that doesn't mean that like, you have to sit down with us every single day and have a Bible study. That may mean we're serving you and we're doing different things, meeting you where you're at. And then one day when the times of you know, the, the things switch and change, maybe we're going to be in the rescinding end and you're going to be coming over to my house helping me and serving me and caring for me. See, the thing about Bob and Mary in this situation, they may not be coming to Sunday gatherings, but they're more involved in church than they ever have been. You guys tracking with me? 
I'm trying to understand. I'm trying to read you guys. Like, are you guys tracking with me? Or, or what am I saying so revolting and so revolutionary that you guys are like, this is just, I'm out of here, Sam. Secondly, we need to understand that we must live our lives in light of the church family. We must live our lives in light of the church family. If I wasn't controversial enough, and if you weren't going to flip over your chair, this, is, this will do it. When God calls us a family, we have to understand his understanding of family was based off of the context of the New Testament, a very strong group family, not our hyper-individualistic one. So that means we must live our lives in light of the church. Earlier in the sermon, you remember that one quote that was super long that I said, remember this. It's by Bruce Molina, and he talked about what a strong group society is. Now, what Joseph Hellerman did in that book that I shared earlier, when the church was a family, he, what he did is he just inserted the word Christian into the strong group society. Now, look at this re- revised quote. And see if you don't just shiver as you listen to this, because it's just so insane. The Christian perceives himself or herself to be a member of a church and responsible to the church for his or her actions, destiny, career, development, and life in general. The individual Christian is embedded in the church and is free to do what he or she feels right and necessary only if in accord with church norms and only if the action is in the church's best interest. The church has priority over the individual member. (laughs) Now... (laughs) How many of you here, just honestly, when you read that, you're like, that sounds like a cult? Anybody? Can you raise your hand, just be honest? Okay, two people, three people, thank you. Three or four, good, good. I see your hand. Any more, any more, any more. All right, all right. close your eyes. Okay. That sounds cultish, right? But believe it or not, that's far more biblical than we want to give it credit. That's far more biblical. Jesus has called us to be a family, and in a family, you don't make big decisions on your own. In a healthy family, obviously, if you have a dysfunctional family, you may do that. But in a healthy family, you don't just go out and just, hey, mom and dad, just let you know, I'm moving across the country. Hey, mom and dad, I'm just joining the army. No, no, no. You do things together in family. Not not to say that your family ultimately would tell you ultimately what to do and they are authoritarian over you, but you make decisions in regards to them, in light of them. Did I lose you? (laughs) I got a lot more amens last week when I just talked about God's love, right? This is the most ridiculous thing you may have ever heard. I mean, this is so ridiculous, and it feels so wrong. But this is, this is the way of Jesus, calling us out of darkness into his kingdom of his beloved son, into this family. And then no longer are we living as individuals, but we're living as members, connected, part of one another. Can I get one amen? All right, I got a couple more, all right. Now, let's, let's talk about what are the hang-ups that keep us from living out this identity. What, what holds us back from simply just saying that we love one another like a family, we're a beloved family, and actually living like one where the world could say, wow, they love each other like a family? Because we are. Well, number one, I think understanding. I think we struggle with understanding, and, and this is why we're doing this sermon. Maybe, and, and, and maybe for you, you didn't grow up in a healthy family. So whenever we say the church is a family or God is your dad, You just don't even know how to comprehend that because all your categories you have is brokenness. So maybe that really makes it hard for you. Number two, we can fear others. Maybe you struggle with the idea of being close to others. There's a a popular book called Scary Close, right? We're afraid of being near because it's scary close. We don't want to be near to one another. We don't want to face the potential of rejection. We, We don't want people seeing the brokenness and junk Because if they really were to see all that, we know that they'd reject us, right? Well, that's the lie that we hear, right, from the evil one. 
Let me, let me share something with you. Elijah, my son, no matter what he does, never has to fear he's going to be rejected. He never has to fear to not be a joy. There's nothing my son can do that will cause me to reject him. In the same manner, that's how it is in the church. There is nothing you can do, nothing you can share, nothing from your past that would cause us to reject you. Except the only thing is that if you reject Christ. And then in that case, we'll just love you like an unbeliever. But you'll no longer be called part of the family. In a family of Christ, you belong before you do. Unlike the world, you have to do before you belong in the family of Christ. Because of what Jesus has done and because he already did for you, we belong before we can do. Before you can contribute, before you can be good enough, before you can be contributing and tithing and serving, you belong because of what Christ has done. And so you don't have to worry about trying to be accepted. Or maybe you're hiding your sin because you're stuck in the shame cycle. And you're just so afraid to share it because it's so painful, so embarrassing. Please hear me. You will never be free and enjoy the flourishing life Christ has bought for you if you hide that stuff. And if the church has wronged you before, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry the church has done that to you. But you want to know the crazy paradox? Is that people who get close to us are the ones who most wrong us. And yet it's people who get close to us are the ones who are going to heal us. The way God has paradoxically created is that we need one another to find healing. And so you need to press in. And so I encourage you to courageously take steps. So if you're in a DNA, if you're in a DNA group, I encourage you to share something this week that you normally wouldn't share. Open up and let people in. And those who are in the DNA, do steward that information carefully. Do take it as a big deal that they're sharing something that they never shared with someone else or normally don't share. That's a weighty, weighty responsibility. Number three, selfishness. The reality is selfishness gets in the way of us living in like a family because the reality is we're probably all more selfish than we like to admit. And the reality is if we open up our heart to say we're family, then that means your problems are my problems. Your joys are my joys, and that just means that I have less for me. And in one way, if, if the way of Christ is becoming the true self of me, I'm getting more of me, but it doesn't feel like that in the moment. It feels like I'm dying to self, and I don't like dying. I don't like feeling that. But ultimately, what do we do? We look to Jesus who laid down his rights and served us and gave his spirit to empower us. Number four, proximity. This is a real issue. Proximity is an issue. Our lives are so disjointed and separated and fractured. And so in our culture, it's especially hard to have overlap. But let me just make a side note. It would not be strange for you to move for a job, would it, in our culture? No one's like, oh, what's wrong with you moving? Like in, in, in the Jesus culture, they'd be like, well, you're moving for a job? What about your family? What about this? What about Jimmy? All right. But like for our culture, it's totally no, normal. What if our church was known to make moves because we wanted to be with each other? And I know some of you guys have already done that. I know the Langenfields did that. They didn't move for a job. They moved to be closer to our body and so that they can love and disciple one another better. I know there's a lot there, so if you have questions on that, feel free to pull me aside. Number five, time or margin. This is just a systemic issue that we have in our churches and in our culture is that no one has time. Nobody is free. We struggle with margin, and this is something to be discipled in. Number six, we have confusion over our scope. In other words, who's your church family? Anybody who's a Christian in the entire world? Anybody who's on Facebook who can reach you? 
It's tricky. And so maybe I can simplify it. This is how I can define your church family. In one sense, everybody who's a Christian all across the world in all times is part of God's global family. Right? However, when we talk about church family in the New Testament author, authors, assume people you're in community with. And to be in community requires proximity. It requires time. So that's why you shouldn't say you're in community with someone across the country because you, you text with them or you have Facebook with them. In ways, you have connection, but it's not the same thing as a true community in the purest sense. So here, here are a couple questions. Who do you share the same Messiah, mission, location, and leadership with? Okay, that's the best I could do. I know that's not catchy and that's not an acronym. Who do you, I tried to make it work and I like looked up like different synonyms for location to make it an M, but it didn't work, so I just quit. So who do you say, who do you share the same Messiah, the same mission, location, and leadership with? And that's your church community. That's your family that you can be committed to. And then everybody else out there has to get whatever you have left, but that's your priority. Remember, Galatians say, make sure you take prior, the, the household of faith is prioritized. Number seven, this is the final one. We are quick to give up. In our culture, we're quick to give up on relationships. We have a conflict, we have a hard conversation, and we want to be outy, right? Because it's too painful, it's too messy, we don't want to deal with it, I don't want to deal with that stress, I want just positivity in my life. And so we cut people off. We're so quick to cut people off. So here's a few applica application points I want to just bring home. So I want to challenge every single one of you this week to, to rehearse and remind yourself that you are a beloved family. I want every one of you, I'm going to ask you, as one of your pastors, I know this is not an authoritative thing in the Bible, but I want to remind you and encourage you to every day remind yourself your identity that you're a family, beloved family. And here's why. If you do not remind yourself who you are, the world will tell you who you are. If you do not remind yourself who you are, your past will tell you who you are. If you do not remind yourself who you are, your circumstances or your emotions will tell you who you are. Every day we have identity crisis. We have identity shift where we forget who God has made us to be in his son. So every day you got to remind yourself, this is who I am. And the more and more you believe that, say that, uh, sorry, the more and more you say it and live out that identity, the more and more what happens is there's something that sociolo sociologists call a feedback loop. The more and more you see those realities, the more evidence is mounting that that truly is who you are. I'm no longer that old person. And so first, I rehearse your identity that I am truly family, and then ask yourself a question like this. If I really believe this, how should I live today? With my DNA, with my missional community, with my church body? Ask yourself such a simple question like that, and I guarantee you the Holy Spirit will give you ideas. And the more you live that out, like I said about this, this thing called the feedback loop, the more and more evidence you will see that that is who you truly are. And that what that does is it reinforces your identity and then that you're going to see more activity come out of that identity. Does that make sense? I just want to call you guys to imagine what would it be like, what would this community be like if you treated me as if I literally was your blood brother? Would you treat me differently if you saw me as your blood brother? If all of a sudden your parents reach out to you, hey, surprise, you have a Korean brother. 
that somehow works. Okay, just, just, just roll with this illustration, right? Somehow, let's say I literally was your blood brother. Somehow. <laughs> Would you treat me differently? I hope not. I hope you treat me the same. Or better, I don't know. And what if I really believed that somehow my parents called me and said, in some crazy way, every single person in that church of yours is literally your blood brother and sister. Would I treat you different? Would I treat you different? And that's a question I really have to wrestle with, and I wrestled with this week. Would I treat you differently? And I, and I would like to say only a little. I would say a lot of you, I truly believe that you're my brother and sister. I truly would die for you. I truly would lay down my bank account for you. I truly would spend my time, my money, my affections, my attention, my everything for you. I, I think I can say that with honesty. Can you imagine if our whole church increasingly did that? So Jesus talks about in John 17 that when the church loves each other with this kind of unity and love, that the world will know that Jesus is who he is. And so one of the most powerful evangelistic tools that we can have for the whole world is loving one another like this family. And when doing that, the world will know that Jesus is who he is. We would attest to the reality that Jesus is real because here's the thing. The only thing that we can point to that brings us together is Jesus. And that's our hope. If we want to be a church of all peoples, listen, it's not going to be through any gimmick. It's going to be that we're so in love with Jesus and we're so loving like Jesus is that love is stronger than the cultural barriers that divide us. And I beg God, God help us be that kind of community that we can increasingly grow with people who are from other ethnic backgrounds, other ages, other backgrounds in general. And because the only thing that makes sense between us is because we're so in love with Jesus and we so love each other because of his love. Amen? Let me pray for you guys. Jesus, you are worthy of that. You are worthy of that. And Father, forgive us because so often we can love each other like the world loves. Love each other in a calculating way. Help us. Help us to be a community that loves one another like a family, like you have loved us. So that the whole world will know that Jesus, you are real. And when you come back, you're going to make all things new. And all peoples will be yours. And we'll be a great big family. Come Lord Jesus for that day and help our community live this out. This was a hard teaching. And I think I didn't help it because I don't think I was very clear. So Lord, be merciful to us and may this be a reality for our church for your glory and our increasing joy in you. In Jesus' name, amen.